You are listening to the new episode of In Love With The Process. I am your host, Mike Petchy. How are you guys? What's new? Uh, I, myself, am still trying to recover from our epic Halloween party. And I'm going to tell you this, guys. Once you cross 35, it takes days to recover after a night of drinking like that. Beers, taco, punch, dips. Yeah, it was a pretty intense, pretty intense party, but a good one. Um, We had our celebration a few weeks early this year because Gina and I are headed out to the West Coast for the few weeks. Uh, I'm super proud of what she's doing right now. She just locked down a really big fashion campaign out in Los Angeles. Um, So uh, I'm going to go out and help her work on that. And uh, hopefully I can convince her to come back on the show and do a good episode. (laughs) Unlike the last one we did. And uh, talk about it. Um, But uh, I've been throwing Halloween parties now for about 20 years. uh, So there was no way that we were going to cancel uh, and uh, this year, I was super excited. I literally lit the whole house like a Dario Argento movie. So it was like Hazer, Smoke Machines. It was like a film set. Uh, and it was also semi-it-themed. And the cheapest thing I could have done, which worked perfectly, was I went out and I bought a shitload of red balloons and a fucking helium tank. And then I just taped the balloons eye level everywhere so the people were getting freaked out when they walked around corners and went up the driveway. It was pretty fucking rad. Um, speaking of Halloween... October is my favorite month for watching horror, and every year I try to watch as many as I can before the month ends. Um, And this month I did some deep digging, and I watched some really cool flicks like Wolfen, Life Force. For those of you who don't know Life Force, Toby Hooper. Those of you who don't know Toby Hooper, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Uh, And I watched Critters 3. (laughs) Like I said, they're not all good, but it was a fun fucking adventure. Um, I am excited to check out the new Halloween movie. I haven't seen it yet, uh, but I hear it's fucking fantastic. Uh, and it's the only slasher franchise, slasher franchise that I actually give a shit about. Uh, I'm really not a big Friday the 13th fan. I like this one. It just seems like Halloween has a bit of artistic integrity for some of them, actually. So, uh, but yeah, horror is, um, but yeah, October is about horror in cult films for me. I watched them both at home and in the cinema. And speaking of the cinema, how many of you listeners out there actually still go see a movie in the theater? Now, there's something amazing about watching, especially watching a horror movie in a room full of strangers, letting the reactions of those around you shape your experience. Somehow, it's just easier to get lost in a film when you see it that way. Now, maybe it's because it's on a big screen or maybe it's because there's sound all around you. But I think it's because, for once, during the day, you give up control. Like, you physically can't stop the movie to go to the bathroom or answer a text. Once it starts, you jump on and you go for this ride, and you have absolutely zero control of where it goes. And the control ends up in the hands of the storyteller. Now, of course, I love that. I think that's what movies should be. Um, But it's happening less and less these days. And unless you're a filmmaker making a movie about a hero in spandex demolishing skyscrapers with a supervillain's face, it's harder and harder to get theatrical releases. Um, So as an indie filmmaker, I am reliant on independent film cinemas. Um, And so I know some of you guys out there may be asking, what is an independent film cinema? Uh, Midnight screenings, limited uh, run releases, filmmaker Q&As, and most importantly, these guys were the original to do it, beer in a movie theater. Um, I want to talk about all this today. It's one of my favorite places to be in the world. 
Um, and there are some amazing uh, cinemas around the country, but my hometown favorite, and in my opinion, one of the most beautiful theaters inside is the Coolidge Corner Theater here in Boston. Now, if you visit our city, go. And if you live here and you haven't gone yet, what the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> I'm serious. This place is awesome. And I'm super excited to sit down here with uh, my guest today. Uh, you are the program manager, right? That's correct. Program manager here at Coolidge. Uh, you host the Midnight Film Series, right? I do. There it is. See, I got my homework done. I know this anyways. Um, and uh, he's always been a huge supporter of my films. Uh, and he also rocks a killer beard, like myself. It's, uh, it's unruly <laughs> currently, but yours is much nicer. Oh, shut up, dude. Um, so, ladies and gentlemen, I want to introduce you to Mr. Mark. How do you pronounce your last name? I've never said it. Anastasio. Anastasio. So, Mr. Mark Anastasio. Yeah. Pecci and Anastasio. Yeah, hanging out. Couple of paisans <laughs> talking about horror. <laughs> Thanks for having me on. This is fun. Yeah, man. And so, um, so if you guys are into uh, cult films, if you guys are into uh, indie cinema stuff, if you guys are tired of the algorithms that Netflix gives you, I want you to hang out. Uh, and you know the deal. Do yourself a favor and heat yourself up a big old tray of pizza rolls. Lock your, all the doors in your house. Turn off the lights and crank up the new episode of In Love With The Process. Cool. All right, man. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you, Mike. How are you? <laughs> I am doing good. We are actually sitting in your office. Yeah, we are in the programming and operations office at the Coolidge Corner Theater. And it's fucking rad, dude. Just looking around in this space, it is piled high with like movie memorabilia and really killer uh, artwork and posters. I got to take a couple pictures in here before. Sure, yeah. You're more than welcome to. Yeah, this place is filled up with decorations over the years. Some are from well before my time. I share this office with our operations director, Andrew Thompson. Um, we have a lot of show posters from events that we've put on. Uh, we have some vintage uh, horror posters. There's this great Dracula poster that I wish everybody could see from the old Hammer, Christopher Lee Dracula. Oh, the good stuff. Yeah, and then we've got this Texas Chainsaw poster above my desk that we had signed by the late, great Gunnar Hansen. Is this what you do on podcasts is describe <laughs> yes. a room to people? Yes. Sorry, I'm an amateur. I literally just did a podcast with Jarvis. You have to listen to it. <laughs> and it was me making him sandwiches. And we just sat there and ate sandwiches. That's pretty good. Did. All right. Yeah. So this is, this is not this is that bad. We're doing yeah. okay then. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's a, it's a great space. We're very lucky to have, this is a corner office, I yeah. believe they call it. Yeah. We've got windows on two sides. <laughs> I... Uh, you know, it's it's a nonprofit theater that we work at, but if you saw our offices, you would think that we were living large. That's right. You'd be looking for the Lambos in the parking lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let me get right into it, man, and let me ask a couple of questions just to catch the audience up. Sure. Um, what is a, and I, I, I described it as an independent cinema. How would you say, what is Coolidge Corner? Uh, the Coolidge Corner Theater is, uh, this, is an, this is an independent art house cinema. Uh, we exhibit both first-run independent and foreign films, as well as repertory films. So we, we play old movies 
as part of many signature programs here at the theater, at least two or three times a week. Um, We also offer programming like live opera and ballet and stage broadcasts. Um, We have kids programming on weekend mornings. Um, We offer senior matinees. I mean, it's it's a community theater. And for the first run films that we do play, you know, we're currently running A Star is Born, which is a bit larger of a film mm-hmm. than we would usually play. Mm-hmm. Um, but we thought that it had some value and, and wanted to show it. Um, we're also running a documentary called Free Solo currently, which is about uh, this guy that free climbed El Capitan in, in I forget. <laughs> oh, my God. You would think I would know. <laughs> yeah. Yosemite. I, I guess that might be wrong. Yeah, you, I don't know, uh, dude. You probably don't. He climbed this fucking cliff with no ropes, and they they taped it. And uh, we didn't think, you know, we just okay. Here's a new doc that we're getting, but it has been the biggest movie we've ever opened in the month of October. Oh no shit! You know these people that you see walking around everywhere in Boston wearing uh, North Face jackets? Yeah, like the REI crowd. Yeah, like yeah. yeah. But turns out they actually like that shit. <laughs> They actually like sporting. They actually like watching people climb, or maybe they climb themselves. But we have just been luckily inundated Holy with crap. people that are into climbing and wanted to come see this film. Um, so it's been a very good month here for first run programming. But um, we've also been doing well with our repertory stuff. It's October, so we tend to play a lot more spooky programs as part of our regular series. Um, our big screen classics program on Monday night screened. The Silence of the Lambs. Super cool. Sold out crowd. And Super cool. What a way to see that movie. Like on film, on a big screen. I liked what you said about relinquishing control. Yeah. You know, people have to focus on this terrifying thing. <laughs> they, can't, they can't pause it or run away or like distract themselves with another device. Like they just have to sit there collectively as a group and experience something terrifying and it's a lot of fun to see horror in a theater. I agree with you completely. Let me uh, let me do a little adjustment here. I agree with you completely, man, and I think um, that's my favorite way to see that stuff. I try talking into that real quick. Sure, one, two. There oh, hey. much better. Yeah, I can hear myself now. There it is. Cool. Um, yeah, no, I completely agree, and I, like I was thinking about that. So one of my favorite things as a director is actually viewing my stuff with an audience. And there's a lot of directors out there that are really scared and petrified to do so. But yeah, for me, it's the best portion of it. It's like, it's like making a meal for someone and then, and then watching them eat it. And then you can decide how well your flavor, your flavor structure works, how well your presentation works. Like all that stuff is so important to me. Sure. And, um, I've screened stuff. I fucking hate it when someone like loads it on their fucking cell phone and they watch it on their cell phone. Just because it's such a small viewing, A, the sound blows, but B, it's such a small viewing thing that passively you, you have to keep your hands in the same spot, and so there's just 100% distraction involved with it, as opposed to when you're in a theater, and I can actually go, okay, guess what? Everybody has to be here at this time. Right. You have to show up at this point. I'm going to set the volume to where I want to set the volume to. We're going to shut off all the lights. We're going to shun you if your fucking phone comes out. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to be polite and sit here and watch this movie. And it's, it's such a, a wonderful experience from a filmmaker standpoint. And then I love midnight screenings because you, generally if you're going to get someone to go at like midnight to see a movie. Yeah, that, they're, they're into it. Yeah. 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 They're about it if they're coming out at that hour. 
and that energy, you feel that energy. And I don't know, I mean, we can get further into this, but when I go and watch shit that I've seen or I have on DVD or Blu-ray now or, or I'm fucking on demand now, like I went and saw Ghostbusters and I remember seeing it on the screen and going like, holy shit, I didn't realize half that, half those props were in the background because I'm always seeing it on some small fucking device. Yeah, you miss, you miss a lot. Um, we'll get real nerdy about this. Sure, shit. yeah. But um, uh, yeah, so yeah. <laughs> I love that shit, too. I completely agree with you. Sorry, I went off on a tangent. No, that's okay. Um, let me continue with some of the more basic questions. Sure. So, uh, what does a film programmer do? Like, what do you, what's your deal? Um, so, my, my day-to-day job is just managing the screens here at the theater. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I set showtimes. Um, you know, we have, we have films playing in four of our houses here five times a day, usually. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's the pacing of those, of that schedule is what I work on. Um, we have, aside from our own special events that we put on here, which I manage just about the, I manage the majority of them. Um, that's interacting with community partners that are helping put on the show, or it's communicating with distributors to make sure the film prints are going to arrive on time. Um, Everything from managing guest lists. I mean, there's a lot to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but primarily, it is taking care of our screens, making sure that I'm, I'm using the time that we have efficiently, making sure that I'm booking um, enough special events to flesh out a week, um, but not overdoing it so as we're upsetting our distributors, you know, because every, for every repertory program that we put on or every venue rental that we do with a community partner, that's taking time away from a first run film that should be playing at that time. So it's, it's a balance of doing the most that you can as a community art house theater while still being able to satisfy the distributors that put out, you know, the content that we make the bulk of our revenue from. And if you piss off the distributors, then you lose your relationship with those guys. Is that Yeah, that's the, that's the risk. Um, you know, it's, it's never so dire, but times like, uh, you know, come October is when you get a lot of films trying to get into your space, looking for, um, looking for a screen, and you. We obviously can't play everything. Yeah. So you have to be, and we have a we have a nationwide booker that we work with, who's fantastic, uh, Connie White from Balcony Booking, um, and she manages those relationships mostly. Um, on my end, it is making sure I don't overbook the space so as to put those relationships in jeopardy. Gotcha. So that's, that's the dance. Um, for an ex- just to give an example, this week we're playing, I think we're playing five different feature films, mm-hmm. um, you know, five times daily in four screens. Um, but we also have, you know, throughout the course of the week, we'll have a midnight movie on Friday night. We're screening John Carpenter's The Fog coming up this weekend. I love that movie. Um, we have a kids show of Kiki's Delivery Service, Miyazaki, on Saturday morning. Mm-hmm. Saturday night is our Halloween marathon, which we'll talk more about. I hope. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> and and then we've got you know we've got a primetime special event Monday. We've got this trivia fundraiser that we're doing on Thursday, um, that shuts down our main theater for most of the day. Um, so it's, it's managing all of those events while keeping the, keeping the time for all of our other schedules. It's mostly like it's air traffic control (laughs) for, for movies Right is how I can describe it. If that makes any sense. So does that mean you're like uh, hepped up on coffee and like 
you know what? Degree. I used to be I used to be hepped up on a lot of things, <laughs> but um, I'm not anymore. I'm I'm living a little healthier these days. I limit myself to one cup of coffee daily. There you go. Well, there since, you go. Since uh, my I have a baby girl at home. My daughter was born in April. Yep. Uh, so she's six months old, and I've I've been clean living, or <laughs> at least at least trying to be clean living. That's cool, man. Yeah, that's really cool. <clears throat> yeah, it's a fun gig. I mean, I don't think I, I'm only I'm only describing like five percent of it. We could dig into my inbox, and I could give you a larger <laughs> overview of what it is I do. But basically, it's it's a lot of it's a lot of communication and a lot of a lot of timing and scheduling. I'm fascinated by this stuff, and you and I have been buddies for a while now. Yeah. Um, and like, uh, there was at one point when I was walking around and talking with your uh, projectionist because I thought I was going to do a piece, and I've really been fascinated with uh, where the films go. Because a lot of times, as a filmmaker, you're you're scrambling to make the fucking thing. You're scrambling to to uh, produce the goddamn thing, and then you're you're processing to edit it, and then. For most of us, you're just sort of like, okay, what format do, does a screener need or where does it go? And then it just sort of disappears off into the ethos and you really don't have any sort of connection with how it's projected or how sure. it's screened for stuff. So I've yeah. been fascinated with that because um, I, I like to take all these things into consideration when I'm actually making something. And a lot of times you'll hear a filmmaker go, look, I made this for the cinema. It's... For me, it's very specific. It's like, okay, I know that the screen is huge, so I know what kind of lenses I want to use, and I know how detailed I can get with my production design. But it also comes down to like audio and sound, and it's a huge thing because you mix differently for uh, theater experiences, and it isn't just you know the fucking five point or the twenty four point surround or whatever. It's mm -hmm. also just how the sound bounces through the room, sure, and how it reacts in that space. So. Uh, I, I've always appreciated our relationship because I've had the ability to come in here and sort of check this stuff out and I've been lucky enough to screen here in the theater um, uh, and I really appreciate what you do I really appreciate what you guys do as an independent theater yeah I, could, I couldn't do any of it without the projection booth that we have I mean our, which is an amazing setup yeah our, our head projectionist Nick Lazaro has been here almost as long as I have going over 10 years now um, I think I've been here 12 uh, but he's at a point where we're operating state-of-the-art, in a, even in our smaller houses, our little 45-seat and 28-seat screening mm -hmm. room, and we call it the gold screen. Um, the projection in those rooms are absolutely top-notch, um, so we don't like hearing complaints. <laughs> you get a lot of people that come to see something on, the, they're like, you know, they're like 12-foot wide screens, Yeah. and you get people that are like, I could do this at home, like this is the same size of my setup, yeah, it's like really you're running a you're running a 2K Christie projector on a 12 foot screen, <laughs> with with Dolby seven whatever. Just, anyway, just just the fucking sound. And, yeah. And and my my big push when I, as a director when I'm when I'm promoting things or I'm putting things together is I'm like it's all about the fucking sound. Mm -hmm. And people are like, what's it matter if you screen in cinemas? I'm like, because if you screen through fucking Netflix, most people have a flat screen TV that they're listening to the sound off the speaker on the back of the fucking television. Right, yeah. It's dog shit. You're losing a lot. So you're, much. You're losing so much of the film. Yeah, and it, when you're actually in that space, 
when we record audio, we're very conscious of like what microphones we're using, where the microphones are placed. Mm-hmm. And when we're mixing these things, we're very conscious of like what part of your brain is registering these sure. things. And when you're listening to it through your fucking phone, cupped on your hand to hear it a little bit louder, you're literally just, it's like cramming an entire band into like a paper cup and then just going out. Yeah, yeah it's no way to screen something that's been that thought uh-huh. about. And you guys yeah. have fucking great audio here, so like, Thanks. I'm, I'm pumped about that stuff, man. Um, let me continue here. Let me ask sure, you a couple yeah. more questions. Um, so how did you okay, so how did you get into this job position? Like how'd you find yourself? Um, let's see. It's definitely not the traditional way. Um, <laughs> I don't I don't have a film degree. Um, I would th- I think that a lot of the a lot of my peers and programmers throughout the country, you know, went to school for film. Mm-hmm. and sought this out as a position that they wanted to have. Um, I went to school for English and always thought that I'd be an English teacher. Always into stories. Um, I would say that the path that took me here was uh, being a teenager, growing up in Connecticut, and and just devouring as many of the weird cult genre exploitation horror dvds as many as i could yeah i'd be buying them from whatever like strawberries yeah i used to work for strawberries you used to work for strawberries yeah either strawberries or like fye yeah um, i'm trying to remember the name of the place that i used to go every friday after school because they had such a great cult horror section and i'd be bringing home films like like fulci's zombie yep. just because of the cover yeah it's just yeah. like we are going to eat you it's like, I need to take this back to my, and I, I had my own apartment from the time I was 17 years old. Oh, cool. I was like that guy in town that had, it's like, oh, he's, he's got his own place. And it was the party house. But the stuff that we would do when we would party is I would throw on one of these incredibly strange films. I mean, strange to us at the time because culture doesn't really reach central Connecticut in the way <laughs> that it does in Boston. So, like, getting those Italian horror films on disc was a big deal, and it was stuff that we had never heard of. Um, so that's, I think that's where I started as, like, a, I don't, I don't even like to use the word curator. Programmer's fine. Yeah. Curator makes it sound like I'm at the Met, <laughs> and I know <laughs> way more than... It's very I, pretentious. You know, it, yeah, I mean, no, it's, it works for some people. It works for people that are smarter than me, that are educating people, um, you know, trying to teach them something important, whereas I am throwing up a zombie gut muncher <laughs> and just trying to have people cut loose after a long work week. Uh, that's that's what I like to do at my series. That's 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 what it's all about. It's sort of providing. You know, this is an expensive city to live in. It is, and I I I my job is making sure that people have something to do on the weekends. Um, but that's where I started, um, was just showing films, collect, being a collector of film. Um, and when I moved here, the, uh, the Coolidge was the first job that I got. When I, when I moved to Boston for college, um, I was able to get a job here as a member of the box office staff. Um, I took every job that came available um, all the way up. <laughs> I was the um I was the assistant to the program manager um for two different program managers before me. Um so I was the understudy for years and have been the full-time program manager for going on 4 or 5 years now probably. Rad, dude. Rad. 
And I could tell when you were the program manager because I could see the horror shit that was coming in. To yeah, I, I really, um, we had always had the Coolidge After Midnight program. Uh-huh. Um, that's, our, that's our weekend midnight movie program. It runs every Friday and Saturday night. Recently, I've expanded it to, you know, back then it was one film per weekend. Um, now I do two. I, I, play, I play a film once on Friday and a separate film just one time on Saturday. Yep. And for some reason, that thought was always like, oh, you're just going to be splitting your audience. But it actually doubled attendance. Yeah. Like you give people one chance to see something on the big screen and, and folks have really responded to it. Um, I've been programming the Coolidge After Midnight series since I started here. So I've been involved in that program for 12 years. Mm-hmm. Um, but only in the last six or seven years have we been running film and having an emphasis emphasis on running 35 millimeter horror cult genre exploitation cinema and just doing that consistently. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it used to be a lot of live shows, a lot of burlesque, a lot of adult magicians. <laughs> I don't know if that's even a thing. <laughs> I'm just trying yeah. to come up with examples. I was going to say, it is now. It's on the <laughs> internet. <laughs> yeah. Now we need to look up adult magicians. <laughs> but, you know, there was, um, there was like, you, know, you were playing maybe one film per month. Mm-hmm. And everything else was some sort of late night live entertainment. Yeah. Um, but I don't have the energy for that. So <laughs> yeah. I've hung up my adult magician's cape and uh, we just we just run film uh, every weekend of the year and we do it incredibly well. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's a good transition here. So uh, a lot of the stuff that you guys show, is it, is it all now 35 millimeter prints or is it a majority of it 35 millimeter for prints? Rep, for midnight shows? Yeah. I would say 95% of the time we're playing an old movie, uh, it's from a 35 millimeter print. I've gotten pretty good at tracking this stuff down. Yeah. And we do well enough where we can go the extra mile to borrow a print from either a private collector or an archive. Um, there aren't too many films that have evaded me. There are, there's some that you can't find or don't exist that, that don't exist on film anymore, but for the most part, you can get a hold of this stuff. Um, because when talking about horror, people love love these films so much that um, a lot of private collectors focus on genre stuff specifically. Um, so you can you can get a hold of it. Um, most recently, 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 I've, I've asked a, in November we're doing a whole month of melt movies. What melt movies? Um, <clears throat> there's not many of them. The films like Street Trash. Like literally, film, literally, literally, movie horror movies where a character just melts down to nothing. <laughs> oh, you mean physically melt? Physically melt. <laughs> yeah, not like a type of film, like the, a type of. A, it's a subgenre of horror called that, melt? melt. Called movies? melt movies, and there are not there are not many of them, um, but we found we found some of the best ones around. Uh, some. Other programmers have organized a tour of a film called Body Melt, uh, which they've flown over from Australia in order to produce a new Blu-ray that recently came out from Vinegar Syndrome. Okay. So we agreed to play Body Melt in November, and I just said, what the hell? Like, let's, let's just show all the Melt movies that we can. <laughs> so that's the Friday before Body Melt, we're going to screen The Incredible Melting Man, <laughs> which there is a private collector that has a pristine print of that film. 
Um, then we're going to play the hits to pay some bills and screen. We're going to screen Cronenberg's The Fly uh-huh. and John Carpenter's The Thing. Of course. Which we screen so often, but <laughs> never as a melt movie, which might be stretching it, but people melt in that movie. Um, and then we're wrapping it up. It's a six film series. We're wrapping it up with a f- wonderful film called Street Trash, which if you haven't seen it, you need to see it. Okay. And then we're following, we're finishing the series with. Uh, with Larry Cohen's The Stuff, oh, which is that, that, yeah, it's like the marshmallow fluff movie where if you eat it, you just melt down into nothing. <laughs> yes. And that, that, print, <laughs> that print is coming from the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. <laughs> really? <laughs> Whenever I borrow a print from the Academy, uh, it is always something that weird. You know, it's like, hello, the Academy is, um, is, is the Dolph Lundgren Punisher film available? <laughs> That's where I borrowed that film. You came, did you come to that I came screening? To that yeah, screening. you came to that screening. That's um, Yeah, it's always something like that where I'm going to the academy because, and they only loan you prints if if that particular film is not available in anyone else's hands. That no distrib that means that no distributor has it. That it's not known to be in any private collection, hmm. and they have to have at least two of them for you to be able to run it. So. These, these weird off-the-beat movies that I've asked to borrow from them, like The Punisher, that means that those are the last remaining prints. That's wild. Like there's no, there's, there are none other in the world. So um, the stuff is going to be quite the show. Um, <laughs> okay, so, so you go out, you deal with distributors, you deal with the Academy, and then you deal with these private collectors. Have you ever met these private collectors before? Sure, yeah, I've met a couple of them. Oh, so I, I'm curious about this. So what are they like? <clears throat> what are these dudes like? Um, they're kind of what you would expect. They're, they're passionate film fans. Um, sometimes they're a little weird, but like, you know, so am I. (laughs) Um, yeah, they're, they're guys like us that are just really into this. A lot of them are old projectionists. Okay. Um, that have just saved these things when, uh, when like burn orders have come in. Like a lot of, a lot of, a lot of them have saved prints from, there would be regional regional hubs like depots around the country that would be in charge of shipping these prints to theaters. Mm-hmm. Um, and when a studio would go under or sell to someone else, and if there was bad blood in the sale, like these dis- these distribution hubs would get orders to just trash, you know, trash all thirty-two prints of wow, you know, Terminator Two, and they'd end up in a dumpster. And a lot of the times, these guys would just be tipped off by folks that worked at the depot and would go save them. That's only one example. I shouldn't be saying, like, this is how they all got. I shouldn't be, like. <laughs> yeah, everyone got their films this way as some sort of rescue effort. No, I'm sure there's been all sorts of sketchy ways that they've acquired these prints. But most of, mostly they're discovered. Um, uh, one of the more famous cases is a wonderful programmer at the Hollywood Theater in Portland, Oregon, a guy mm-hmm. by the name of Dan Halstead that we've had here at the Coolidge this summer. Um, he runs a Kung Fu series. He's the programmer of that theater, but runs a fantastic Kung Fu series and is famous for a hall of Kung Fu movies he was able to save from an old Shaw Brothers theater. I think, I think it was Canada. Um, he just, he asked the building owners if he could get a look in the basement and they sent him a key. Wow. Uh, yeah. And he, he, yeah, you could look this up online and he discovered hundreds and hundreds of Kung Fu movies that were thought to be lost. Some of which are, 
the only prints available and, and he rescued all this stuff and keeps it in a private archive. Um, so there's a lot of stories. Well, there's not many stories like that, but there are smaller scale stories of how these guys have acquired prints. And, and I'm meeting new collectors all the time. Um, at the Halloween marathon this year, we're going to be running trailers that were loaned to us from a collector that just stepped forward uh, to me in the last couple months because he's been coming to shows at the Coolidge after midnight. Mm-hmm. Um, he wrote and said, hi, I, I'm in the Boston area and I have, I have hundreds I have hundreds, like f- upward of 400 uh, 35-millimeter prints of genre, kung fu, horror, spaghetti, western. Would this be of interest to you? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So I'm putting together all sorts of programs for this winter that are going to utilize some of these prints. And um, you wouldn't otherwise be able to show a lot of this stuff if these people hadn't saved, stolen, or uh, <laughs> foraged these 35-millimeter prints. Yeah, because it's a big deal, right? Storage of those things is kind of a big deal. Yeah, it's tough. You have to have them at the right temperature. They also take up a shit ton of space. Um, I bought my first 35-millimeter print a couple years ago out of necessity for needing one for a screening of... uh, I I wanted to screen a film called The Taking of Pelham 123. I know it. Excellent movie. Um, the, the, The only print that was known was booked in New York for the entire summer. Um, and they said, you know, good luck trying to find another. And I did. I found another with uh, an old projectionist. I, I'm saying old. I think he was old. <laughs> ancient. An ancient, ancient, <laughs> crusty. I'm getting notes from our operations director who has entered the room. Uh, ancient, crusty projectionist. He was like, he, was, he looked like a hermit. I didn't even see him. Anyway, he, uh, he, he offered up his print of Pelham for the price that you would pay to rent it for one screening. Wow. And he said, if I dig this thing out of storage and send it to you, uh, I'll be happy just knowing it's now being cared for by someone who gives a shit about it. You know, just pay me the 150 bucks, which is like a standard print rental fee. Like 150 to 250 bucks is what you pay these guys to screen their print for your show. Because, yeah, you're also paying the distributor you know, a guarantee of 300 bucks versus a percentage of the gate. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, I've, I've got up a network of about 10 or 12 folks that I borrow from pretty consistently. That's rad, dude. Yeah. A lot of people don't think about that because I think when, uh, if you happen to pick up like a local rag or an advertisement, you see that there are screenings or there's like midnight screening somewhere and they're like, oh, cool, they're screening a 35 millimeter print of Ghostbusters or they're screening a 35 millimeter print of this stuff. They don't take into consideration that uh, the studios themselves and the distributors themselves aren't, unless it's a special occasion, they're not pressing new they're not making new new 35 for sure some some do for special occasions for for a re-release like a, or a 50th anniversary like when they did uh the blade runner or th- like that yeah, kind of shit. yeah yeah the, there was the blade runner final cut yeah was they definitely made prints of that we screened it here actually that was one of my favorite films that we ever that was back in 2007 i came for that one too. i think i watched that film like at least three times a day while it was here. Oh, I love that Just movie. sitting as close as I could. Yeah, it's a gorgeous film. Um, but yeah, they're, they're not making new prints. More and more, it's hard to get prints from them. They, they, they certainly have made all of these older movies available via DCP. Mm-hmm. That's their preferred way to ship out. Um, films that are, 
theaters that are as reputable as ours and, and, and distributors know that we have a skilled booth, skilled projectionists that are still working, it's easier for us to get prints than I would think some other places. Um, you have to be real to real now. You can't just have a platter system. A mm -hmm. lot of, some independent theaters still run a platter system. Um, that makes it harder to get prints because everything is treated with a bit more respect because distributors are aware that these things are rare and that if they get damaged, they're not going to make another one. Um, so the difference, because a lot of people don't know. Yeah. So we have, in our, in our booths, we have two projectors and the films are run full changeover. You know, a standard 90-minute movie will come on five reels of film. Mm -hmm. and one reel goes up and, and starts, starts rolling, and you're watching the movie. Uh, each reel is only about 20 minutes long. Mm -hmm. So, you know, at 19 minutes of that reel, the projectionist gets ready on the second projector, and there's a changeover where he, he switches to the new reel, and you don't even notice if he's done a great job, and you do that back and forth for the duration of the film. Um, there is a practice called plattering where all five reels of that could be built up onto one large reel that is housed uh, vertically yep. instead of, I'm sorry, horizontally instead of vertically. Yeah, I, I just like <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> horizontally, like a giant, think of it as a giant VHS tape. And the film sort of runs all around the room <clears throat> and it's projected that way. Uh, and then it's just, it's just rewound. At the end of and it. there's a lot more of a danger in Definitely. using a platter of yeah. it getting damaged. Or yeah, the, the path of the film itself is usually running, literally running around the room, and it's unprotected. And if something goes wrong on a system like that, instead of, you know, imagine if you've laced up wrong and there's a little piece of metal putting a scratch in that film mm -hmm. after it passes through the gate so, like, no one's noticing. Um, instead of just scratching 20 minutes of a movie you'll have damaged the entire room. The entire, yeah, just in one, just with one mistake. Yeah, and the projectionist, a lot of folks don't realize what a, what a skill. I mean, I could do a whole podcast on projectionists. It's such a skill, and it was like a, a unionized, I don't know if it still is a union. There's a union, job. yeah. Our guys, I don't think our guys are in the union. They're not. Um, but, but there is a union, Locally, still, and it, it used to be that it was a fire hazard. And there was all sorts of like real intense training that you would have to do. They to still do. They have to get licensed. Uh, it's a, it's like a heavy machinery license. <laughs> so it's always funny when our guys have to go re up their licenses because it's like, it's like some, you know, our, our wonderful projectionists are all kind of like sort of mousy film guys. Yeah. And they got to go, they got to go take a test with a bunch of like crane operators and bulldozer drivers. <laughs> it's like, what do you do? I'm a film projectionist, <laughs> and it's just kind of it's just a funny visual. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, it's fantastic. So I, I have, I, like I said, there's so many cool things. So when you go and you sit in a theater, especially if you go and sit in like like what you guys do, like uh, if you go to some of the big chains, you just feel like you know they're just pumping it out. And most of the stuff these days, all the theaters were forced to go digital. Right. right. There's nobody in those booths. Yeah. There's no one in there. I went to see the new Halloween movie last week, um, and it, it started with no picture on screen. It was just, just the audio. Ugh. And you had, I, you had to quickly run out and say, like, hey, the, we can hear the movie, but we can't see it. And then somebody finally went up there and restarted it from the beginning. 
Um, but there's no one the, like presentation is what we're all about here. Yeah. In when we're starting, whether it's a whether it's one of our first run films on DCP, or if it's a 35 millimeter print for one of our repertory programs, there is someone in that booth controlling the start of the show, dimming the lights, opening the curtain. Uh, correcting the masking to make sure it fits the right aspect ratio of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff going on in that projection booth uh, before your show starts to make it seamless and perfect. Um, and our our team of guys and girls, men and women, uh, are very careful with presentation, and and they all put on wonderful shows. And you guys are, are you guys the only place in town that has the 70 millimeter projector? We're not the only place in town, but we're the best. Yeah, <laughs> that's very true. <laughs> that's very true. I saw, um, I saw Tarantino's last one here. You saw the Hateful Eight here? Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's great. Yeah, we definitely were projecting the Hateful Eight the best in town. <laughs> there, there, no one is going to argue with, I mean, some people might argue with that, but it's just the truth. Um, that was a really great rollout that our friends at Boston Light and Sound um, helped to not only locate those additional 70 millimeter projectors, but in, they installed them in theaters nationwide so that they could do this massive rollout of Hateful Eight. And our projection team was actually very involved in assisting them in testing those machines before they went out. Um, luckily, we didn't, you know, we needed a few parts and lenses in order to project that film. Uh, correctly but mm-hmm. our our norelco projectors in movie house one it's just a matter of swapping out the rollers that the film the path that the film runs because they need to be wider obviously. they need to be wider you can just you just make a few adjustments it takes about a day to change it over uh, but we're ready for 70 millimeter and um, we've done quite a few since the hateful eight but the hateful eight did look gorgeous um, it also played at i you know it played also at uh I think it was the the Regal Fenway installed one of the BLNS systems, and it was fine. Sure. And our friends at the Somerville Theater also do great seventy millimeter presentations, but um, ours was sharper when we played that movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, when I got to hang out with the projectionist, I think it was around that same time, and I was able to to look at what a frame of seventy looks like. Yeah, it's huge. Significantly larger than thirty five. It's yeah. huge. Yeah. It's massive, and to, to, to imagine uh, like a thick thing like that just being fed through a projector. Super, super heavy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think since then we've done, we did Dunkirk in 70 millimeter. Oh, right. That was the other big one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Dunkirk looked great. Um, hopefully there's another one. We, we've been lucky enough to do at least one a year for the last three or four years. Um, so I'm hoping that there's another chance to run 70. And people, audiences respond to it. Um, people people come out for 70 millimeter shows. I mean, it's a higher ticket price, mm-hmm. but for the most part, no one bats an eyelash. Um, they're, they're excited to come out and see this larger format of film and they're excited to see it with audiences. Um, and that's been really encouraging. The having audience recognition of format is a wonderful thing. It drives a lot of the attendance of the after midnight program because most of our regulars are there and excited to see this movie that they love on film. Yeah. Um, so that's why we, for that series, we're operating at like 95% that is your chance of seeing the film on, on 35 millimeter. For our primetime programs, we, we prefer to run film. 
Um, but if, if condition, we're a little bit more lenient with condition reports for the midnight series, obviously those audiences are not going to be, uh, not going to be too upset if a film is a little crunchy or shows its age or is slightly faded. Yep. Whereas primetime audiences aren't that forgiving and I don't want to give them, I don't want them walking away saying net, you know, Netflix looks better. So in those in, yeah. in those instances, if I get like a C plus inspection report from a distributor or an archive, um, and at that point we might say, "All right, we Look might as well sh- might as well show the DCP." Yeah, I mean, um, there, now do you see do you see a difference when you're projecting uh, digital print and uh, film? Yeah, film looks better. How does it? What do you mean? Um, I've never been able to articulate it, uh, which is what you're asking me to do. <laughs> I've never been able to put my finger on exactly what it is, um, but there is there is a there is a life to 35 millimeter um, that that isn't always there with digital presentations. It's a fascinating thing. I mean, I examine. It doesn't shit mean that it looks. It doesn't mean that digital features look bad. When this all first started and they made us change over, I was one of these like, it's like film or nothing. Yeah, yeah. And I'm I'm not that guy anymore. <laughs> Um, but I, I still do believe that watching a 35 millimeter print is uh, it's a more pleasurable experience for me. Um, I like, yeah, I don't I don't know what it is. I'm not sure. So there's somebody. It's, there's something. Didn't there. Keanu Reeves do a documentary about it? I haven't seen it, but yes, he did. Right. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if he figured. Can we call him? Yeah, let's call him up. Right Have now. you met Keanu Reeves yet? Not yet. Oh, okay, cool. Not yet. Not yet. All right, eventually. Uh, eventually, it'll happen. John John Wick six <laughs> will get me for that. Yeah, um, I'll, I'll put myself in for that. Yeah. Uh, no, um, I don't know what it is either, man. Like it's something interesting because if it, when it's a digital signal, and it, and it's just being put through. Yeah. There's a huge difference that when you're when you're doing 35, it's it's literally frames that are separated by a black border. That's right. And a lot of people talk about that how it it gives your eye a bit of a break. Yeah, it's the flicker. It's a, it's like this real subtle flickering effect. And there was this whole bit from a shooter's perspective where everybody and honestly, it's from a fucking TV manufacturer's perspective. Yeah. Where everybody's like, "Hey, you should be shooting your shit at 60." You should be shooting your shit like they shoot television stuff because it's crystal, it's clear, and we make these televisions that smooth everything out. I don't know if you've seen this. So you can shoot yeah, like 23.97 or 24 frames per second. Right. Or you can shoot what a lot of normal TV was like sports shit, which is like 60. And at 60, everything just looks hyper fucking real. Yeah, people don't want that. They're going to the movies to escape real. Escape real. realism. Yeah. That's a big part of it, man. And when they were doing... Uh, the when they were manufacturing these cameras that could shoot 24p and they're trying to figure out all these different angles and how to technically make that work, as a director of photography and cinematographer, you're constantly trying to suspend disbelief because at the end of the day, what we're doing is we're looking at a fucking flat panel on a wall right. and assuming that it's got depth to it. Sure. And uh, I, I always felt like that hyper-real video shit was just, you're like, this is too, this isn't a movie anymore. This isn't make-believe. This is physically a guy putting a fucking basketball through a hoop. That's exactly what I'm looking at. Right. And uh, they've done such a great job of, of advancing digital technology so that you can see that. I get real fucking nerdy about it as a shooter goes. Even now, when you look at stuff, if they're running it at the wrong shutter speed or the wrong frame rate, you start to get this ghosting effect mm-hmm. that you see in the actual raw footage. 
Um, and sometimes I see that on digital projection screens. I just feel like there's something, it's like listening to an, like a, like an old vinyl. There's something very analog about film. The fact that light has to push itself through yes. uh, a negative or a print uh, in order to project it onto the screen and like the bulbs dimness, right. but all blacks, that stuff. Blacks are in a true absence of light. Exactly. Instead of projecting black, which is a weird fucking thing. Yeah. You know? Um, yeah. I think it's a, it's a, it's an interesting experience and there's a better people than me that have had this conversation about it. Sure. Um, but I respect it. And I, when I have the ability, when I look at your listings and I go, Oh fuck, they have, you know, this on 35. I'm going to see this on 35 just to feel that experience. The same way I would go to a vineyard to actually yeah, taste Yeah, that's a good way wine. to put it. Yeah. It's the same reason. It's like going to the source and being like, okay, let me taste this again. Because uh, I get so nerdy and, and annoyed with algorithms right now and with how, how vanilla your movie experience is. Because... Maybe it's just old and getting older and being 40 and nostalgia, but video store experience is gone. Right. Any sort of physical experience on how you acquire your shit is disappearing. Yeah. Um, and it's now getting to the point where you're not even hunting for yourself for these things anymore, uh, whether it's your music or whether it's your movies. It's just this like an algorithm that, that looks at what you've seen and then just gives you vanilla versions of what you've yeah. seen here is something that is just like this exactly yeah not as good but i mean that to me is what netflix is right now is a whole lot of like you guys like cheeseburgers well here's kind of a cheeseburger and there's plenty of them so eat the fucking things you know um and i think that's ultimately my rant that goes nowhere is why i like independent film theaters because there is someone like you that is actually programming that is finding these things and it makes a hell of a lot of sense that uh, you come from where you come from as a guy that was digging through bins and looking for horror pieces because essentially you're doing that same thing for an audience here where you're digging through bins and you're looking for who's got prints and then you're sort of putting these things together from your perspective. We're, we're going the extra mile to make sure that people get off their couches. Yeah. Like just come out to the show. Like we we've got a, we've got projectionists that are putting on an impeccable presentation. Um, we're curating the best that we can here. Um, yeah, it's it's all in an effort to but get more, people out for the experience. But more importantly, you're telling me, which is nice. It's like being able to go. It's like when I used to go into the. I still do. When I go into the comic book store and I talk to the person behind the counter and I go, "What are you reading right now?" Right. As opposed to like tuning into a website where the website's like, "Here's a review." And here's my fucking thing on what this thing is. I want a personal experience from somebody else to go like, here's how it affected me. Sure. And that is huge for music for me. That is huge for films for me. That is huge for everything. Like that personal interaction, because part of it for me is like how excited you are about it and how it's affected your life. And I'm like, oh shit. All right, cool. Let me watch this fucking thing. Like you're telling me about face melting movies. Like half those, yeah. half those movies I would see... Uh, <laughs> like a movie poster for or a DVD cover for it and go, yeah, I'll get to that. That's on my list of I'll get to. Yeah, no, now you got to buy like the package to see all six of them here <laughs> yeah. in November. <laughs> yeah, dude, I'm totally into that. <laughs> so I want to take a second here, guys, and uh, plug my sponsors for the show. 
Um, but I hope you guys are enjoying this conversation with Mark. Uh, it does get even nerdier, so stay with us. Um, but first, I want to uh, talk about my buddies, my good buddies over at PugetSystems.com. If you are a video editor, if you're a sound designer, if you're a photographer, if you're just looking to build yourself a new computer uh, and the price tags on the Apple system seem a little too heavy for you, I would definitely consider uh, getting yourself a PC. Um, and the guys from Puget Systems are my favorite place to go. I did a lot of hunting and searching when I made the switch myself, uh, looking for a place that would not only build me an affordable PC, I also wanted something that would be upgradable. Um, and I also wanted uh, good customer service. Uh, and these guys excel at all of that. Uh, they're a real small company out in the West Coast. I, um, I think they're up in Washington. Um, but they're fantastic. They ship all over the place. And we have, at our company, we have two systems from them right now that uh, uh, we're still running. And I think they're about two, three years old at this point, And uh, we haven't had any problems with them. Um, so I would highly suggest it. And it's really easy to order this stuff. I mean, there's a huge difference. Like If you guys go to the bigger company's website, you usually go on there and there's like two or three options and that's all you have. These guys will break it down based upon what sort of programs you use. So you can actually search based upon your programs uh, and then they'll start with like a baseline system that is completely customizable and you can talk to your own representative and get the system built the exact way that you want it. Um, so if you are in the market for a new computer, definitely go check out Puget Systems. Uh, also sponsoring us uh, for this episode are our good buddies over at Rule Boston Camera. Uh, if you're a filmmaker um, and you're trying to deal with the constant upgrades, the constant changes in what is hot on the marketplace, um, I really suggest that you go make a really good relationship with your local rental house. Um, I think it's ridiculous to try to, to stay current with technology because it literally lasts like six months and then it's outdated and then you're indebted to the gear that you bought. Uh, it's not really a smart business plan. It's you, you end up becoming the gear guy that's trying to get your gear on every job because you're trying to pay it off. And then as we all know, as freelancers, you have those clients that are like, can't you just throw the camera in? So it takes you forever to pay off this big expensive piece of equipment that may or may not be relevant in a year. Um, so what are your options? Like I said, go make a great relationship with your local rental house. And if you're on the East Coast and you're in the New England area, the place to do that is at Rule Boston Camera. Not only do these guys have great deals on equipment that you can rent, but they have a full support team. So imagine this, you're on a shoot and for some reason the piece of equipment doesn't work. These guys will actually drive out a new one to the set. So like talk about putting your clients at ease by uh, telling them that like, don't worry, the gear is coming from a great rental house like Rule Boston Camera, so we're covered. There's nothing better than that when you're on set. Um, these guys also do really great training seminars. Uh, they're always looking to meet young filmmakers, um, so don't be afraid to go down there. I know that there's a lot of young uh, filmmakers and photographers out there that are worried about a big rental house and like, how does the insurance work? These guys are really cool. So go down and have a conversation with them. Uh, and if you want to check them out online, go to rule.com. Uh, and I just recently did 
a cool photo series with them. We teamed up from In Love With The Process and those guys, and we did like a bunch of really great, I'd call them camera porn shots, basically, of uh, a lot of the new cameras that are on the marketplace right now. It's a lot of fun to hang out and do that. So go to rule.com, uh, check them out. Um, also, I'm going to plug them because uh, the episode is about it, and you guys can hear how excited I am about the Coolidge Corner Movie theater, if you are in Boston or you're going to visit Boston and you are looking for something fun to do after a night of drinking, <laughs> then definitely check out their Midnight Series run by Mark. Um, if you go to, I think it's Coolidge.com, just Google search Coolidge Corner Theater and you'll see what is playing. It is a beautiful theater inside. Like, it's gorgeous. It's like a, you walk in there and it's a theater from the past. Um, but that doesn't mean that their sound system isn't top-notch and that the projection isn't amazing. It is my favorite place to screen my movies um, in Boston. So if you come and visit us, go and check out Coolidge Corner Theater. Let's get nerdy, man, because let's talk about movies, because you're the guy to talk about movies with, all right? So, um, what is your uh, favorite independent horror film of this year? Oof. There you go. It's a good one. Um, I mean, I think it's got to be, it's got to be Mandy. Yes. It has to be. Um, Mandy was a film that I was fortunate enough to be at the premiere of at Sundance last last January. Um, and it was one of the only things I saw at that festival that I said, I absolutely need to bring this back to Boston for our after midnight audiences. And it's one that I kept up on. And I was so glad that we were able to get it not only for a midnight release, but we ran it theatrically. So we did the midnight shows and it screened at like nine o'clock in one of our smaller houses all week long. Mm -hmm. Um, that was great that it actually had a release here because it was certainly worthy of it. Um, but I, I thought the film was absolutely gorgeous. I, was, I, I just thought it was a it's, a, it's a true midnight movie without like, it's not, it's not like trying to be something. It's not making fun of them. Yeah, it's not making fun of them. It, it, just, it just is. There's a beautiful rainbow outside. <laughs> if we can start, you guys, you, you and Jarvis ate the sandwiches. We're going to talk about, about a rainbow rainbows. that no one can see. Um, <laughs> the rainbow showing up because we're talking about Because we're talking about Mandy. And That's it's, a very, exactly it's it. a very sort of fantasy, uh, wonderful I horror did. picture. I, I mean, I love that movie so much. And I love that movie when I read the description of that movie before it was made. Did you? Know, you? It was just like, I heard Nicolas Cage is a right, chainsaw-wielding yeah, sure. lumberjack. <laughs> and uh, he's got to go on a revenge of uh, his wife who was killed by a cult of fucking people. Yeah. And I was like, holy shit. And then I saw that Panos was making it. Yeah. And I was like, holy shit, shit. And then I saw that it was independently financed. And yeah. And I was like, oh, yes. So, like, all those elements made that movie into this beautiful experience. Yeah. It's a, it's a true indie that made it to screens. And, and that that's pretty awesome. Um, we had, we played it two weekends at midnight and it drew huge crowds every time, every time we screened it. I'm glad that the Brattle Theater 
in in Cambridge has picked it up to screen in November. Mm-hmm. I think that's rad. That I, I might go see it again, um, just to see it, just to see it on film. Um, great performance from Nicolas Cage. Amazing. Um, the whole cast. The whole cast good. is good. Yeah, everybody's great. Is it Am- Amanda Riceborough? I forget the. She was so weird, and it was it was, it was wonderful. Perfect. It was yeah. wonderful. Uh, and and the thing that I because I saw it, I've seen it like. I've seen it like five times. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I've seen it like five times. And I'm nerding out about it. My writer has seen it like six times. He's nerding out about it. There's a lot of people that work in the business that are nerding out about this movie. Um, But uh, I was really impressed with the amount of control that the director had with Nicolas Cage. So like when you watch that movie, it isn't a Nicolas Cage movie until maybe 30 minutes into it, 40 minutes into that film. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like 45 minutes into it when, when he actually starts up. Yeah. When he starts caging out. Yeah. The beginning of it is just him like sort of making his way through. It's a really nice relationship between he and his lady. Yeah. Yeah. I fucking love that movie, man. Yeah. It's really good. I love that movie. That psychedelic freak out scene. It really, it's really unsettling. It's just a simple trick that he's doing between like the, the, it's just like this pulsing in and out of two different faces. I oh, don't know. yeah. It's, oh, it, it was God. the crossfading. It was really right. simple. Yeah, it's crossfading. Really simple. And then um, he did such a really good job of making... I'm not giving anything away. He did such a really good job of making those the motorcycle gang fucking scary with just sound. Yeah, it was. It was just the it was just the mix that made those guys terrifying. And it was really it was so cool. many drippy, growly, yeah. loud like motorcycle and like ATV noises, and you were just like, oh. I don't want to be here. It is such a okay. So one thing that I'm constantly battling with when I'm making stuff is that people want things to be so very simply digestible. That's right. the big move. And it's anything from story, from story structure um, to motivation of characters to the way it's shot and the way it looks. Mm-hmm. And if you watch like a lot of horror stuff these days, I feel like uh, everybody's either jacking off to <laughs> uh, Fincher shit or trying to recreate Fincher looks. So like the whole dark House of Cards-y, like girl with the dragon tattoo-y kind of vibe, which sure. is like everywhere. And everybody's shooting with like these super high, beautiful, new anamorphic lenses that are super crisp and clean. And it, it, it only gives you one look straight across the board where it's like, well, and when you see it, it's kind of vanilla. Like most Marvel movies are vanilla looking. Mm-hmm. Everything just has this sort of like sure. plain visual palette. Um, but Mandy, he was like flares all over the fucking place. They were using some crazy fucking filters. They had like weird, because it was, it was shot. There's animation. Dude, it was all over the and the contrast of colors. It's just such a, it's such a wonderful. It's it's the difference between going, it's the difference between going to Chili's, <laughs> and driving over to Waltham and sitting down and having an authentic Mexican meal. Yeah, like it's it's really the difference between those two. Um, and it always goes back to food. <laughs> yeah, you're making me hungry. All right, all right, let's continue. That was good. That was good. Um, <clears throat> Okay, so you you go to uh, a bunch of film festivals, right? Just to look to see what's coming out. Yeah, I do. I do go to Sundance specifically to look for new genre stuff. I try to see all of the midnight movies that I can when I'm out there. I try to see them at midnight with midnight audiences, so that you can see the reactions. Yeah, I, that's that's the thing I go by. And being at that premiere of Mandy, the audience reaction was through the roof. 
Yeah. Um, it was the most animated crowd that I had been with while I was at that festival. Um, I was also a little, I was lucky that I was at that opening of it because the filmmaker and the cast were there. Cool. So I was a little starstruck by Nicolas Cage. And I, I think I told you this when we saw the film together, but the, the coolest thing that, he said the coolest thing that I could have heard come out of his mouth was that um, he, he was in, his performance was inspired by Jason Voorhees. <laughs> and I just, I was so, I was sitting in the front row and when he, when he said, when he spoke those words, I'm a big Friday the 13th guy. Okay, I really so you I, like Friday the 13th. Oh yeah, I really like Jason. I'm a big Jason guy. Okay. okay. I, think, I think Jason is like, is one of the new movie monsters from our generation. Like our parents' generation had the universal monsters. Yes. And and what we were given as children were Michael Myers, Leatherface, Jason, Freddy. Yes. Those are our those are our universal monsters. So anyway, so oh, yeah, yeah. I'm a big Jason guy. And when, when Nicholas Cage said he, his performance in Mandy was inspired by Jason, I think I made a little noise like, oh. <laughs> you know, and he looked at me. And I, I just had to like cover my mouth and be like, please continue, you know? <clears throat> so I knew that I was into the movie even before hearing from him, of course. But um, that was one that I, 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 I've already said this, but I knew that I wanted to bring it back here and I stuck with it all year. Yep. Um, yeah, I mean, that's almost, I mean, it's what, it's nine months since I've seen it to when it plays here at the theater. Um, all right, well, okay, so, so what, let me ask you this then. So, um, like I, I've been trashing on the algorithm sort of stuff. If you're a, a young filmmaker or not even like a, a person that loves movies and you want to uh, basically do what you did so that you want to go back and you want to host a movie night, you want to have a bunch of your pals over and you want to show uh, five really trashy genre movies, like five really trashy oh, God. genre movies, like what would your top five be? The top five to like to really like freak out a room. Yeah, um, I would show I spit on your grave. The original. The original. I would show the last house on the left. Mm-hmm. I would show. Well, it's not really. Some people might think it was trashy. I would show the I would show the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. That movie's still fucking haunting as shit. Yeah, it's you know it's it's more regarded as like a classic, but like that movie opens on dripping, oozing, <laughs> grave robbed corpses that have been molded into a, a weird position. Um, yeah, Texas Chainsaw. What else? What else would I throw on screen? I would play. Um, let's see. I would play. I drink your blood. <laughs> which is a movie about a, uh, a murderous hippie cult that eats that eats rabies infected meat pies and goes even more murder murderous. Um, and I would play Cannibal Holocaust. Okay, those would be the five disgusting exploitation films that I would put on screen to ensure vomiting. <laughs> Those are good ones. Yeah, Those are good. there's a good lot. Ones. It's a lot of can. There's a lot of cannibalism, a lot of murder, a lot of decapitation. Um, Last House on the Left was a film that I watched when I was too young to see it. Oh my God, how old were you? I was probably eleven. 
Okay. That's that was too, that was too young for me. Yeah, because that movie's primarily about rape. Rape and murder. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and the scene where the two young girls are murdered was just so real to me that I I kept trying. I, it was like over a friend's house. We were like in a basement, and there was there was like a group of kids there, and I felt like I was the only one that wasn't handling it. So when I when it comes to, when the, when I came to the realization that these young people are about to be murdered, I remember running up the stairs and just standing in the guy's kitchen, just being like, "I can't go back down there. Like, <laughs> how do I go back down there after this?" And I went. I eventually went back down and just pretended to like keep watching, you know, like just like hiding my head near a corner of the couch and like with one eye looking at the TV. <laughs> but that one was, a, that, was, that made me afraid to revisit it. Um, I didn't see the movie again <clears throat> until, um, until I screened it here at the Coolidge After Midnight. It was no one shit. of, yeah, it was one of the first films, um, one of the first films I programmed to play at midnight. Um, I thought it would be fun to, to play last, the, I thought it would be fun to play The Last House on the Left on the opening weekend of the remake of Last House on the Left. <laughs> this was a thing that I did for a while. Um, and I think, I think it was that screening where we, we got like 12 people out to the show and I came on stage to do the introduction and let people know that they were about to watch the original Last House on the Left. And there was like a row of seven people that got up and left <laughs> because they really wanted to just see the remake. Which is trash. <clears throat> the remakes are trash. Yeah. So I stopped doing that. That was, a, that was part of my trial and error years. It turned out people didn't like being tricked <laughs> into watching the first one. You shouldn't have said anything. Yeah. You should have just been like, okay, so we're really excited to have uh, Last House on the Left here tonight. I did the same Enjoy. I did the same thing when Inglorious Bastards came out. Oh, did you play the I original? played the old war movie yeah. Inglorious Bastards and I had like a huge house <laughs> and and there was a collective I was like, You guys I hope that you all know that you're here to see the original Inglorious Bat and there was a collective like, Oh, <laughs> Like nothing like disappointing a room full of people before it even starts yeah, at midnight. They can't even go anywhere else. It's not like they can go across town and catch another show. <laughs> so I, I stopped. I stopped doing that early in my career. All right. So final question. Yeah. Would be uh, if. If you're someone that, because uh, a lot of folks don't know about midnight stuff, a lot of folks haven't been to midnight screenings, and I, surprisingly, I brought it up to people that I know, being like, "Hey, I'm gonna go see a midnight screening." Like, what the fuck is a midnight screening? So they don't know, uh, and they don't understand that it isn't just, "Hey, I'm gonna go watch this movie at midnight." It's, "I'm gonna go watch this movie with diehard fucking fans yeah. of this film." So that being said, what are your top five? Midnight screening movies that if someone saw it on a lineup somewhere, they should go see it. Uh, number one would be uh, The Evil Dead or The Evil Dead 2. If you see that listed as a midnight screening, you should go to it. Um, let's see. Top midnight movies. <clears throat> I can tell you about some of my favorites that I've done here. Sure. Um, uh, let's see. 
uh, Claudio Argento's Demons. Oh, I love that movie. Wait, did he produce that or did he direct it? I don't know if he produced it because he's always got a name. Lumberto Bava. Maybe it's the Bava. May I do Lumberto Bava? Maybe. Oh I just, God, are you going to be able to edit this? Yeah, it does. Matter. I'm going to give you two. Ready? Yeah. Uh, Claudio Argento's Demons. That doesn't sound right. It's got to be Umberto Bava's <laughs> Demons. <laughs> okay. Who directed Demons? Umberto Lenzi. That's wrong. You're wrong, Andrew. Anyway, uh, <laughs> I don't know. It's gone. Uh, oh, that, that reminds me. Oh, other, other, let's say, scratch all this. <clears throat> let's see. Other midnight movies that you should go out and see if you see them listed somewhere. Um, any John Waters film. If you, if, you see, if you see a John Waters film playing at midnight, um, even though John and I have been quoted in an article in Vanity Fair uh, going against one another. Really? Yeah, he, he, he was quoted in an article a couple years back. Vanity Fair did a piece on midnight movies, and John Waters said that midnight movies were dead uh, and that that was not a thing and that if people wanted to be risky, they should start doing like 6 a.m. movies. <laughs> <laughs> or something like, you know, he was just trying to get a headline. Um, he and I have since talked about how mid his films still do very well at midnight, and uh, he apologized for <laughs> shitting on midnight movies. Uh, but if you, see a, if you see a John Waters movie listed at midnight, you should absolutely go to see it. Um, uh, Alejandro Jodorowsky movies, you can pretty much only watch them at midnight. If you were to watch a Jodorowsky movie in your living room by yourself, it is... It is not the same experience as going to a theater and seeing it with 300 people. Uh, I, I that pretty are, much guarantee that if you try to see it by yourself, it's getting shut off in the first fucking <laughs> five minutes. No, I'm a big fan. Come I on, love his stuff. My, I love his stuff, but it is you have to it, see it with yeah, an audience. You have to see it with an audience. Like the the Holy Mountain is a film that I haven't been able to play out here. There are some movies that are great midnight movies that I will do you know, every couple of years. And sometimes you see their numbers dwindle, yeah. which is a little sad. Um, but The Holy Mountain is one that keeps tracking upward, um, which is great because that's, it's not so much in popular culture. You're not seeing, you're not seeing things about Holy Mountain on a regular basis. Um, Jodorowsky is not making headlines like he used to. But if you play that film here, you get, you get a crowd uh, and it's, Lumberto Bava is the director of Demons. I've just been handed a note card. <laughs> Lumberto Bava. I think I did say Lumberto at one part. Sometimes I said Umberto. It's, a, it's produced by Dario Argento. Great. Thank you, Andrew. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, Yodorowsky movies are fantastic here. It, is, it was wild to see uh, a house of like 350 people. Most of them were younger folks, like teenagers were coming out. Like either stoned or like on acid. Yeah, because it's a it's a word of mouth fucking thing. It is, yeah, and that that was that was great to see. Um, let's see, let's see. We did Yodorowsky, we did John Waters, we did The Evil Dead is a great midnight film. Um, yeah, I can't think of I can't think of any others that. Yeah, there's that some there's there's so many that I love to go. Like I will I will go see the thing anytime it's playing. Oh sure, yeah. The thing is one that I've tried not to play so much. I get accused of playing it annually, and I think it might be true. <laughs> the fact that I've worked it into that Melt movie series, but it always has a house. Yeah, I mean, because that movie has gotten so much more popular with age. 
Like that it's movie a, is just refined. It's so great. Like the practical effects in that film are just like off the charts cool. Yeah, dude. You just you freak out, and it's great to freak out amongst hundreds of other people. And that's that's a movie that people would watch at home, but there's a different experience when you're seeing it on the screen. Yeah, people are screaming like yeah. during the oh god, I I've been to screenings here like during the the blood test scene <laughs> where they're tied to the couch and like oh it's just so intense. Um, but that's a really great one. And then obviously when they were doing uh, the original Blade Runner, that is just like absolutely fucking drop dead gorgeous. Blade Runner is a great is a great screening. Um, we I think we we did uh, a couple years back. We did the final cut in prime time uh, back because rights for that movie keep fluctuating in and out of availability. Okay, for years and years between that 2007 re-release and like maybe three years ago. Rights were unavailable. You couldn't screen Blade Runner in a theater. Weird. Because um, they're working things out or it's owned by, it reverts to a lawyer somewhere. Um, so when we were able to book it again, we, we played the final cut in prime time. And then at midnight, we were actually able to get a 35 millimeter print of, I don't even think it was the theatrical cut. I think it was, uh, or was the theatrical cut the one that has the, the terrible detective like internal monologue? Oh, yes. That was the original, yeah, where Harrison Ford does the monologue. We, just, uh, we were able to get a print of that version, and we ran that <laughs> at midnight um, on the same night that we had done the primetime screening, and people came out for both. It was really cool to see um, the uh, older audience at a midnight show. Um, but, yeah, there's something, about, there's something about the time slot itself that I thought has always let people know that what they were coming out for was something a little more dangerous. Mm-hmm. You know, like this is the only time this place is willing to show this movie mm-hmm. that, that should tell you something about the content that you're coming out for. Mm-hmm. Um, but time and time again, there are some people that get surprised. I, here's a story. <laughs> we were playing, uh, Yodorowsky's Alejandro Yodorowsky's Santa Sangre oh, yeah. okay. at a midnight show. Um, super rare print that we've borrowed a couple times from the Academy. Again, only asking for weird shit from the Academy. Um, <laughs> we had a great house for it. It was, it was, it was the summertime. It wasn't even winter. Uh, it was the summertime. We're playing Santa Sangre. Uh, I'm running down to the front of the house to do the introduction to the show, and there is a family in the second row with small children. Why? Small children. And I do the intro and I'm trying to like watch my language because there are children here and I keep getting distracted by the fact that I'm looking at mom, dad, and like two little kids. Um, and then sure enough, like the film begins and it opens, it opens very strangely with a man in a tree who is thrown like a whole salmon and he jumps down from the tree, cawing like an eagle, and begins tearing into the salmon with his hands and his teeth, <laughs> right? And I see the family get up and run out of the theater, like running with the kids, holding the kids' hands, and they're trailing behind them, like catching air as the parents ran out with them. And I had to go to the box office to see what had happened. And I was like, why, why, what happened with that family? Like, why did they just, they just ran out of Santa Sangre and they were like, they, they thought it was a Santa Claus movie. <laughs> Could you imagine? At midnight. It's like, why would we play something about Santa Claus at midnight on a Saturday? 
Like in July. Oh, but I just want to be there. I just want to be right next to that family when they realize when it just starts just like, to <gasps> sink in. And it's like, I am, I'm ruining my children. Yeah. <laughs> oh. So that's, that's, you know, I would hope that for the most part, that's, that's, that's one example of people that didn't heed the warning that, <laughs> that the midnight showtime is. Uh, well, cool. I think, I think at this point, it's a good point to stop, man. It's been a sure. really fun time sort of chatting about cinema with you. It's been really fun to uh, talk about old theater shit. It's super cool. And then uh, I usually allow uh, this time for you to plug anything. So is there anything you want to oh, plug? Yeah, yeah I want to plug. I don't, I don't think I actually did talk about it again. I wanted to plug our... Oh, wait. No, this is going to air like after this weekend probably, right? When are you going to put this up? I could try. I, no, no, don't, no pressure. I would just want people to come out to see a show at the Coolidge After Midnight, which is every Friday and Saturday night throughout the year you can always see something weird and wild on 35 millimeter here at the coolidge corner theater awesome dude awesome well i appreciate it and thanks for the time and thanks mike this has been a lot of fun So thanks for listening to this episode, guys. And if you are a follower of the show, I'm sure you were scratching your head last week or two weeks ago when I released episode 26 instead of episode 25. Uh, simple reasoning for it, guys, is that I actually sat down with Matt, who uh, was in episode 26, and I just got overzealous. <laughs> and I just cut the whole thing. So we recorded it, cut it, and posted it within, I don't know, like five hours. Uh, that's the only reason why that one came first. Uh, they both were sort of Halloween themed, so I had to pick one over the other. Um, <clears throat> but uh, I have no favorite. I think they're both great. And thank you, everybody who has been tuning into the show and listening. I think our viewership, our listenership for uh, episode 26 is the largest that we've had yet. So it is working. If you're out there telling your friends about the show, other people are listening to it. Um, and that's fantastic. And the more listeners that I get, the better chances I have with my sponsorships, the better chances that this show will happen more frequently. Um, it took me a while to get this one out because uh, Gina and I did spend a crazy two weeks in Los Angeles. Um, I took a bunch of meetings and she shot a huge fashion campaign for like a really big brand. Um, and hopefully I can convince her to get on the show and we'll, we'll just do like a travel to LA kind of show. Maybe next. We'll see. Um, but uh, please continue to follow me on Instagram. If you follow at MikePetchy on Instagram, you will have seen all the pictures from our crazy adventures over the past two weeks. Um, and that is also the only place that you can see 12 Cam, my short film. Um, and I am getting back into that, guys. So if you want to see the film just drop me a private message pm whenever the kids are calling it these days um over to me on my instagram account at mike Petchy. tell me what your favorite horror movies are and why you should see 12km um and i will send it to you i've been doing this for hundreds of folks um it's a personalized thing i i actually send it directly to you um and uh, the feedback's been really great so i'm really excited about that uh, also follow the In Love With The Process P.O.D., In Love With The Process pod on Instagram. This is a great place to see uh, photos from when I'm recording the show, 
Uh, on occasion, I'll do an actual live broadcast there, and you can also drop questions in and, and ask questions that will end up on the show. Um, so definitely follow both those. Um, and the show is now on Spotify. It is now on iTunes. It is now on Stitcher. Um, it is on every podcast outlet that I can find. If there is one that you listen to that you can't find the show on and you want me to get it on there, drop me an email. Um, at uh, I think it's in love with the process at Gmail is what the email is for the show. You would think I would know, but uh, I'm spread too thin, guys, so deal with it. Uh, and that's kind of what's going on. So like, like I said, uh, I'm really excited that there are more people listening to the show. Uh, and I hope that you guys really enjoyed this this episode with Mark. I'm trying to do uh, more shows that sort of break beyond the standard sort of filmmaking uh, programming that most of these podcasts do and really get into like the little process, the little nitty gritties that are interesting um, and actually learning about how 35mm prints are programmed in the theaters and how that stuff works is important as a filmmaker. Um, you should really understand where your movies go how they're programmed um that being said thanks for listening to the show and i will see you next time